Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Sarah. Today, we are joined by Michael Roper, owner of Hopleaf Bar. A relaxed neighborhood pub, Hopleaf has been promoting better beers, wines, and spirits in Andersonville since 1992. Come experience the Belgian-inspired kitchen featuring their famous mussels and frites in an adults-only setting at 5148 North Clark. Welcome, Michael. How are you today? I'm good. Great. Well, we'd love to start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and where you're from. So uh, I am a native Detroiter, and uh, I worked in the um, bar and restaurant business in Detroit before I came to Chicago. Uh, I was attending Wayne State University in uh, 1972, and um, I needed a job to work my way through college, and I started as a waiter. And uh, over the next few years, um, that sort of took over my life and uh, became, it was, it became my calling. Um, I moved to Chicago in 1982 and I worked at some other people's restaurants, but I also did some other things. I worked in retail, I worked a construction job, uh, did all kinds of things. Um, and I think everything that I did um, contributed something to uh, what I know about my business. And uh, in, um, in the um, winter of 1991, I saw an ad in the paper for a place for sale in uh, Andersonville. And um, uh, many of my friends told me, oh, God, it's way too far north. Don't, you, won't, you don't want to open there. You want to be in Lakeview. You want to be in Old Town. You want to be in Lincoln Park. And, um, but, you know, I had looked in all those neighborhoods and at that point in my life, I just couldn't afford anything in that neighborhood. So there was a bar owned by an old Swedish guy and, um, it was not a happening place, but it, it had some things that like some intangible things that I thought I could make work. And, uh, so I pulled the trigger in, um, in December and signed all the contracts and then you have to go through like an FBI fingerprint check and all this stuff to have a liquor license. And so it took me till February 15th to when I um, got the keys and took over the former Clark Foster Liquors. And over the next few months, uh, it morphed from Clark Foster Liquors into Hopleaf. And before we get more into the story of Hopleaf, like what drew you to Chicago or made you make that decision to move here from Detroit? And I know such a renaissance now is happening in Detroit. Do you go well, back a lot? And you know, back back in the 70s and 80s, um, lots of people were leaving Detroit. In, in fact, people are still leaving Detroit, even though there is something kind of going on there. The population continues to fall. But I don't think that I could do what I wanted to do with my life in Detroit. I actually don't even know that I could do it now. Um, and I, uh, at that time, my then girlfriend uh, and I decided we we're going to leave Detroit. And um, she wanted to move to New York City. We went to New York City and um, just kind of, I'd never been there. She had. And uh, uh, to look around, see if this would work. And I just, you know, I like some things about New York City a lot, but I said, I don't think I can live here and I don't think I can do what I want to do. And also, when we were visiting New York City, um, that was during the era where New York was kind of teetering on bankruptcy and there was a garbage strike going on. Mm. And, you know, they don't have alleys there. So I'm walking down the streets and it's, oh my God, there's rats and 
trash in the street. We want, we want to move out of Detroit for this. And uh, so I told her, I said, well, you've never been to Chicago. And I had been coming to Chicago since 1970 and was pretty familiar with it. And I said, I think we should go there together and look around at apartments and things. And um, I won her over and we moved to Chicago. Our relationship was brief. <laughs> um, she still lives here, though. Uh, I still live here. Um, but, um, it did turn out to be kind of, uh, uniquely well suited for what I wanted to do with my life. And, um, and then on top of that, um, you know, Andersonville also turned out to be uniquely suited to my business. That's a great story. It's never, there's nothing like a hot weekend in New York city to make you appreciate Chicago's alleys. <laughs> yes. Well, Michael, you said, you know, you purchased a former bar. What was that original bar like? And how did you go about transforming the space to, you know, meet your vision? So um, there's a type of bar in Chicago um, called a slashy. And a slashy is a place that is a liquor store that has like another room that also you can drink in. So it's a, you know, it's half liquor store, half uh, tavern. So that's what that place was. They that's actually the name for it. I've never known this. A slashy. That, well, I mean, it's a colloquial term. It. Yeah, uh, that's in so Chicago, great. if you talk to people in the bar business, yeah. um, they, you know, it's a slashy. There's that's a few awesome. of those places still left in the city, mm -hmm. and um, so that's not the business I wanted to be in. I, I wasn't interested in packaged goods. Like they were selling, you know, twelve packs of old style tall boys and stuff like that. And that's I wanted a bar. And um, so um, one of the things, the first things that we did was tear the wall down between the two spaces because it's a 35-foot wide building. It's a double storefront. And originally, the north storefront was a barber shop, and the south storefront was a German meat market. And the barber retired in 1955, and uh, Hans Gottling, who was the old Swede, decided to take both storefronts and expand into them. But uh, aesthetically, the place was one of those kind of dark places with no windows and um, drop ceiling. And it really wasn't, it, it, there was nothing there that we were going to keep. So um, over the first six months, we sort of dismantled the old business. And we built the booths. We brought in the new back bar. We took the drop ceiling down and discovered there's a tin ceiling up above. So let's restore it. Uh, let's put bathrooms that people would actually go in. Uh, there, um, you know, uh, the plumbing was unbelievable. Um, so we replaced all the plumbing. And we were tenants then. We didn't own the building. We were just renting. So there were three apartments in the building as well. And my landlord lived upstairs. So, um, you know, it was a slow morphing into Hopleaf. And, and so so much so that we decided to not really have a grand opening until we were really done and, and we were very happy with the new staff and the new products and everything. So we had our grand opening one year later. So we had our grand opening in uh, mid-February of 1993, even though we'd been open and running kind of like Hopleaf for a while. But we didn't put the Hopleaf sign up until... One year later. 
Because one thing that we were very afraid of is the place was, you know, I'm being kind to say it was a dump. And we didn't want people to see it um, and then say, you know, like, wow, I really don't like this place. I'm not coming back. So we wanted to um, work out the worst of the problems so that when people came, they were going to want to come back. So, you know, we were not proud of it at first. um, And it was a little sleepy. And it happened just, um, it was unfortunate and fortunate, is right after we bought it, um, there was a um, sewer replacement project, which, you know, Andersonville has just gone through a water main project. The sewer was much worse because they, um, the streetcar tracks were still under the street. They had to rip them out. Clark Street, south of Foster, was closed for months. Like, I'm talking six months, not one lane of traffic. No lanes of traffic. Clark Street bus was on Ashland. So our business potential uh, was zero. I mean, so, okay, this is the time to kind of fix things up. A few old timers came in, but business was terrible. And many businesses failed in the neighborhood. There was a great Honduran restaurant next door to us called Maya uh, that was picked by Chicago Magazine, 25 best places under $25, and they failed. There was an Italian restaurant southwest called uh, Costa d'Oro. There was a Greek delicatessen on the corner of Winona where the um, dry cleaners is. That failed. Um, it was a tough time. And, and, you know, it was only, I mean, we just squeaked by. It, it, it could have been the case that you would not be here talking to me. You have never heard of Hop Leaf, that we might not have made it through our first year. Uh, we were charging things on credit cards and and just like we ran out of money. Um, but somehow we just squeaked through the year and we kind of finished it. And aesthetically, it looked like we wanted. We put the new glass storefront in. And th- that grand opening night, we were packed in the middle of a snowstorm. And we were able to kind of catch up on all the, the you know, the lending that, you know, we borrowed a lot of money and stuff. And, and, uh, and it was an instant success. I mean, we were really, really successful. Once we were proud of it, and it was pre-internet days, we actually sent postcards out to hundreds of people and um, said, you know, grand opening, and, and, and people came, and then they kept coming. Well, we are so glad because a world without Hopleaf is a world in which we do not want to live. Um, so when did you convert the second floor? And when you opened and had that grand opening, were you serving food at that time? No. We, well, we, well, not our own food. We were actually selling food from the Middle East Bakery. <laughs> and we had a relationship with them. And we had a menu and we stored some of their food. And uh, we didn't really have a kitchen uh, so we were sort of microwaving their stuff, um, and that was our that was our menu, um, and um, it got us through those first few years. Um, so we purchased the building in two thousand, and uh, that allowed us to eliminate the three apartments, to put a kitchen in the back room, um, to put a real dining room in, uh, which so the dining room and the kitchen opened first. We had some uh, permit problems that delayed the opening of the mezzanine and the second floor space because timing-wise, uh, it happened to be right after the E2 nightclub disaster that we were trying to get that uh, through. And the city at that point was saying, oh, my God, we no more second floor spaces. Um, they're just too dangerous. 
So we had to jump through an awful lot of hoops to get that uh, permitted. But we did, and it, it opened eventually. And uh, one of the things we found out right away is that the little kitchen that we built on the north side of the dining room was incredibly inadequate for our business. We never thought we were going to serve so much food. And so ticket times were terrible. People would wait an hour for a table, and then they waited an hour for their food. And, oh, we, you know, we got to solve this problem. And it took us a long time to figure out how to solve that problem. We just kind of endured. But, the, uh, you know, we were way busier than we anticipated and sold way more food than we were built to do. I mean, we could only get three people in that kitchen. And um, we also had chefs that were very overly ambitious. Uh, we never thought we were going to be serving some of the food that, you know, like whole roast chickens and skate wing. And uh, we didn't even have a grill. And they said, oh, we're going to serve steak. So we have to squeeze a little char grill in here. And um, so um, after that, after we opened up the back, the next thing is that we opened the patio in 2006. And then in 2009, we bought the building next door to expand into it. And can you talk about that expansion and what that was like and how it um, kind of expanded the experience and the services at Half Leaf? Uh, so uh, there was a restaurant there called La Donna. It was an Italian restaurant that was very successful in its early days. But after 10 years, um, they had lost their chef and things, you know, they weren't really very successful anymore. So they had offered the building to us. Um, we had a long and contentious um, negotiation period, uh, which completely fell apart at one point, and they put it on the market and tried to sell it to somebody else. So um, it took us uh, a couple years to actually purchase the building. We bought it in 2009, uh, halfway through the year, just before the real estate collapse. So we paid a lot of money for it. We're at the top of the market. And then uh, about um, about a third of the value of the building went away immediately. And the bank that was funding our um, rebuild of that space went under. And the new bank that took them over didn't honor the loan. So we were in 2009 and 2010 trying to borrow like $1.6 million and no bank was loaning any money. So the space sat empty for over two years. And we were paying this big mortgage, but we weren't taking in any more money. So it was a second time when we almost didn't make it. That almost took us down. But what happened was uh, the Obama stimulus package had a very specific program that almost it was like they made it for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it allowed us, without any kind of um, uh, application fees or anything like that, to borrow money from the SBA, Small Business Administration. And uh, they fully funded it. And uh, we opened that space in uh, 2012. Um, instant success. Our business almost doubled. We hired 25 more employees. Uh, the SBA actually filmed a video uh, because uh, about us, because we were like the model uh, success mm -hmm. story. Um, it allowed us to, uh, uh, our kitchen was five times bigger. Uh, we have a prep kitchen underneath it. Um, when you order food now there, uh, instead of waiting an hour, um, your first course usually comes up in about five minutes. 
Um, we are able to seat larger parties. We are able to be so much more flexible. You get, um, you get your food faster. You get your drinks faster. Um, it's turned into a much more positive experience for customers. Um, and um, it's just um, allowed us to, you know, sort of bring into fruition all of the things that we may, you know, that maybe I had in mind in 1991 when I was, you know, having these dreams. And uh, uh, I think that also because we have so many different spaces, like some people only like the old North Bar, some people only like the South Bar, some people like to sit outside, <laughs> some people like the mezzanine. Um, there's all kinds of different experiences that you can carve out for yourself in there. And, you know, we have a private party space upstairs, so we do stuff up there. Um, we have a very flexible um, um physical plant that allows us to do things really great. Well, tell us more about the process of menu selection for both beers and food. How do you source your beer? So we buy, um, there are, you know, uh, we, we have the three-tier system in Illinois, so we have to buy not directly from breweries, but most of the products we buy are uh, from distributors. So we have five or six distributors that we buy beer from. Um, there are new breweries uh, every day. There's uh, 85 breweries now in the city of Chicago. There's 170 in our metropolitan area. Uh, most of these breweries are less than five years old. So they all come in, uh, boy, we'd love you to carry our beer. And uh, of course, you have to disappoint most of them now because we just don't have room for everybody's beer. Um, we like to um, be loyal to the breweries that were important to us, you know, when we started out. So a lot of new hip bars, you know, they're not going to carry Sierra Nevada or Anchor or, uh, you know, beers like that, that, you know, maybe it seemed to be like my father's craft beer. But um, I think a lot of people really like the fact that we do still carry those beers and they're excellent. We still have um, a big section of our menu is Belgian beers, uh, and I have visited many of those breweries in Belgium, and I have great relationships with them. Uh, I tend to choose beers by uh, two things. It's uh, the, the flavor of the beer itself and uh, the relationship that I have with the owners or brewers. Um, we also have a really great wine program. Um, we try to buy our foodstuffs with the same uh, care that we buy beer and wine. Uh, so we buy a lot from local farmers. Um, we try to be very sustainable uh, in the, um, you know, the farms that we buy from. We like them to be uh, good stewards of the planet. Um, and so I think we have an overall philosophy that extends to every single product that we buy. And we hope that customers know the difference because they have to pay a little bit more for a grass-fed, hormone-free steak than they would um, a factory farm steak. Um, you know, if their pork comes from a farm in central Illinois and the farmer um, pulls up with the truck and brings whole hogs in that we butcher, um, we think that's a better way to do things. Uh, in the uh, We are in Chicago, so there's not much fresh produce in the uh, winter, but uh, in the uh, summer and fall, uh, we buy a lot of stuff from local um, local sources. We're already getting, you know, like we have foragers bringing us ramps. So the next week or so, we'll probably still have uh, ramps coming in from uh, rural Illinois and rural Michigan. And uh, that's the way we like to buy things. 
can you talk a little bit more in depth about the beer? Has there been a beer on tap since day one? And um, is there a brewery that produces a consistent favorite? We read somewhere that Allagash has been the only brewery poured on two tap lines. Is that true? Uh, no, we actually do have. Uh, now, Allagash is a brewery that we will you know, because we always have Allagash White on tap, and we have since they've been in the market, which has been over 15 years. But they do make some other things, so we want to take the Allagash White off in order to have something other, you know, one of their other cool products. But we do that with some other breweries too. I, I don't like to have too much repetition because with, um, you know, there's 7,500 breweries in the United States right now. There's, you know, maybe 10,000 breweries uh, around the world that offer their beers in America. So with all those choices, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important that we offer more um, brewers products than multiple products from one brewery. But sometimes we break that rule for certain breweries. Um, as far as beers that have been on tap since the very beginning, uh, I mean, we've always had a beer from Sierra Nevada on tap. We've always had an Anchor beer on tap. Um, as long as Bells has been in the market, um, they've been a very important brewery for us. And they've been here since we were their third account, I think, in the city. Mm. Um, and in fact, Bells, I, I credit Bells with our survival. Because Bell's was a cult beer in 1992 and 1993, and very few people carried it. But there were all these Michigan, you know, sort of the, the Detroit diaspora here. Um, they all wanted this Michigan beer. And um, so I asked Larry Bell if I could make my own. They didn't have a neon. I said, can we make a Bell's neon and put it in our window? I think it would be a real draw. We put that thing in the window, and people would be riding the 22 bus north to Rogers Park. And they'd see the bell sign, just pull the chain and get off the bus. <laughs> I mean, it was just Stop amazing. requested. I mean, yeah, it was um, that beer brought people to Andersonville who wouldn't have otherwise come here. So we've always had their we've always had their beer, uh, and um, there are other newer breweries that are now in the always on tap. Uh, and then there's some Belgian breweries like and we always have triple Carmelite on, we always have Quack on, we uh, always try to have a Trappist beer on tap, um, and um, you know th th those are beers that just are really big hits. Three Floyds is our biggest single um, brewery. That I mean, we sell more of their beer than any other single brewery. So obviously, Three Floyds is always on tap. Well, Michael, what led you to draw inspiration from the beer and food culture of Belgium? So um, I had an early introduction to Belgian beer and food culture because I lived in a neighborhood on the east side of Detroit, which happened to have the largest urban Belgian population in America. And there was a bar over there called the Cajou Café which is the oldest Belgian restaurant in the United States. And uh, I and I didn't know much about, you know, I, I got to say as a kid growing up, I didn't really know much about like where Belgium is or what they're, you know, what is the deal with Belgium. And a matter of fact, I've often said that we, um, we didn't, we mispronounced the names of the Belgian businesses in our neighborhoods so there was a um, 
a hardware stall store that we called Paul Darone Hardware Store, and we thought they were Italian. Well, you know, Darone is that um, there were other Belgian-owned businesses that we, you know, really hacked the names of them, uh, and we we thought because there were a fair amount of Italians in the neighborhood too, but we mistook most of the Belgian businesses um, for Italians, <laughs> and then. Uh, when I, you know, was old enough to go into the Cadu Cafe, then I realized, oh, this Belgian thing going on, and they serve mussels and frites, and they had a. There wasn't a lot of Belgian beer available in the United States, but they had the few that were, and this place had been open since 1919, and uh, they had um, a what's called a Belgian feather bowling alley. So they had two bowling alleys of this really weird rural sport. Uh, with a feather on each side of the alley, and you roll this wheel down this. Uh, it, it's a very bizarre sport, <laughs> but uh, it it familiarized me with this whole thing of Belgian culture, and uh, I love the beer. And um, so I thought, when I came to Chicago, I said nobody is doing this. Nobody even has heard of this. So I'm going to bring in as much of the Belgian beer as I can. And then, um, you know, there were lots of German places with sausage and beer and stuff. And I thought, no, mussels. You know, I, it, nobody else is doing this. And I really like it. And it just turned out that around 1992 was when many Belgian breweries just started importing their beers to the United States. So, um, you know, we were able to get Chimay and Westmall and Orval and all these really great beers. And then early on, I went to Belgium, and uh, I met, um, <laughs> I actually met some of the brewers because we had a Belgian customer, a young girl who was going to college in uh, Chicago, who was Belgian. And so we stayed with her and her mother in Brussels, and her mother knew a couple of people that owned breweries, so she just drove us to the brewery and introduced us, and um, and so we got... We got like a little inside um, a chance to see things that maybe other people didn't. So we were way ahead of the curve on that. Now there are Belgian places in almost every city. Um, and it's kind of a thing now. But we were way, way ahead of the curve. And it mostly had to do with the fact that I just happened to live in the right neighborhood in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and about how many pounds of muscles do you go through a week? On an average week, it's probably about a thousand pounds, but we have had weeks where we started to border on two thousand pounds. Uh, they're delivered six days a week. Uh, mussels are alive, and they have to be alive when they go when you cook them. Uh, so it's very important that they're fresh, and uh, we get them uh, twenty-four to thirty-six hours out of the water. Um, they are uh, we clean them and sort them and uh, put them on a bed of uh, drained ice. And they can live for up to two weeks like that, except that they're not going to be in, at Hopley for two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, they will not be in Hopley for two days. So um, because of the volume that we sell, the mussels are extremely fresh. And um, since we cook so many of them, um, they're always perfectly prepared. 
So Cakes for Kids is an event this weekend. Um, it will actually, we'll air this episode after it's held, but tell us about this event and specifically your vision for supporting neighborhood public schools. It's always so inspiring. I know I've personally heard you talk about this a few times, and I feel it's always so inspiring to hear you talk about the connection between neighborhood businesses and neighborhood schools. So um, any place... Any, anyone that has a business with a door that's open to the street, um, people are going to come in all day asking for money for a lot of worthy causes, for you know breast cancer research, for refugees, for their theater company, for cancer, you know, you name it. There's somebody going to be asking. And at this point, either by in-person, uh, online, or mail, I would say that we get requests for a charitable comp- uh, contribution. I probably get four or five a day, every day. And um, so for many years, like, you know, I want to be a good guy. I want to be a good business. So we wrote $50 checks for the American Cancer Society and $50 check for a literacy program. And uh, I felt that, um, you know, it's kind of like it goes into thin air, you know. I mean, it's a good cause. I I would never say that anyone should not um, give money to these things. But my $50, how do I know what happened with that? So um, about 12 years ago, a couple of uh, parents from Pierce School approached us for that kind of donation. And um, I, um, you know, I said that we would, um, yeah, we'd, we'd write them a check. But I talked to them for a little while about the long-term needs of the school and how the school integrated in the community and everything. I thought, wouldn't it maybe make more sense for us to give almost all of our charitable giving to one entity in the neighborhood where I actually could see what happens with the money and actually maybe even participate in the choice of how the money is is spent? And so I met with the principal, and uh, you know she outlined a bunch of things that the school needed. And uh, we said, well, yeah, we're going to start, we're going to have some events that will raise big money. So the first few years, what we did is we had a big annual brunch. Um, and then we decided to do a little beer festival called Kegs for Kids. Uh, the first year we did it at the Metropolis Roasting Facility. Then we did it at Mundelein College in their big auditorium. And then we moved it at to Hopleaf. And uh, some years, I mean, we were raising in that one event, uh, you know, $30,000, $35,000. And, uh, and then we expanded that to um, having um, beers donated by us or by breweries or by importers or distributors that are on our menu that, you know, they would donate a keg and then 100% of that money would go to the school. So that raised thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars more. And uh, it's worked out really, really well. And here's why. <laughs> uh, I think that you can't have a great um, sort of environment for business if the neighborhood public school stinks. Because um, what happens is that your customers, some of them, you know, decide to have children. And then if the schools aren't good, they move out of the neighborhood. And while they say, you know, we're moving to Northbrook because the schools are better. We'll still come in here. You'll never see those people again. And so um, it, it's important to have a, a viable option for parents to send their kids to a neighborhood school 
in order to keep the customers that you cultivated for years to keep them coming in. If they leave, it, if, if then you know it's not just them that are leaving; all the families leave, and then you have you don't have a diverse uh, neighborhood culture. So I think it's very important to um, do things to make sure that we do have a viable uh, public school in the neighborhood. And in a perfect world, of course, you know um, the school would be supported by tax dollars, and we wouldn't need to do this. But we don't live in a perfect world. There's all these things, especially about art and music and technology and stuff and after-school programs that CPS doesn't fund fully. So we like to step in and fund those things. And so it benefits us in many ways. Um, the parents of these kids, um, they are loyal customers. Uh, when a teacher retires or has a 50th birthday party, where are they going to have it? They're going to have it at Hopley. Even if they're not a teacher at peer school because people, teachers all over the city know about us. And, um, you know, our events are in the teachers union newspaper. And so um, it's actually good for business. It's, it's actually a marketing tool. When we have a big event, uh, sometimes, you know, Channel 2 comes and with a film crew and they, you know, I mean, how much would it cost me to buy an ad like that? Uh, I also feel that the kids who are engaged at their neighborhood public school are probably not the kids that are spray painting uh, the back of my building. Uh, I think that having a good school means better people. You know, you, you make better citizens. Uh, I think the fact that we are allowed to choose how the money is spent uh, means that, you know, I think that, you know, sort of my, uh, my wife and I, our values um, are uh, expressed by uh, how the money is spent at the school, so things to do with, uh, you know, uh, after-school programs, and we do stuff with theater companies, so the kids, th a lot of kids don't have a lot of confidence, but a theater company comes in and, and works with them, and it really helps them, and we get to actually go in into the school and watch that happen, and I think there's so many reasons that it is um, what I call enlightened self-interest. You know, yes, we're doing a good thing, but it actually pays us back many times over, and uh, I evangelize for this to other uh, businesses like mine. I've talked to some other chambers of commerce groups. And, and um, you know, I think that every business should find something in their neighborhood that they want to adopt. It, it could be a school, but it could be something else. You know, there's all kinds of um, needs in the neighborhood. I mean, we, we give some money uh, and support to the Methodist home. And we, you know, because... Um, some of our uh, customers, um, their parents live there, you know, and um, so we know it's a good thing to have in the neighborhood. It's a good thing, you know, from from birth to death that our neighborhood provides services at every stage in life. <laughs> and I think that that's what makes us such a great neighborhood is that you could live here your whole life and everything that you really need, all the important things are are here and we want them to stay here so um, it, we know that it, it doesn't necessarily stay here without help. So we, we help them out. We even have cemeteries, so yeah, yes, you can stay forever. We have too many cemeteries. Those <laughs> dead people, don't they're not good customers. <laughs> As somebody who attended Cakes for Kids for many years, but then just recently was able to justify it because I'm a Pierce parent, 
personally thank you for that effort and its ripple effect. Um, I guess just quickly, you know, you do live in the neighborhood. You um, support other establishments. I, you shop at the farmer's market. You know, you you do your, you, you live here, you do your business here. But just do you have a quick reflection on what that experience is like um, kind of living and working and enjoying um, this community so deeply? I, I mean, I think that this is, um, it's sort of the urban ideal. Uh, I... Um, I like to walk, um, and um, when my knee replacement gets all fixed up, I'll be able to walk a little bit more. But I like to live in a neighborhood that is very pedestrian-friendly, and this is that neighborhood. And I like a neighborhood that has a lot of um, you know, independent businesses. Um, it is a place when I walk to work, I walk by all the little shops. I know the owners. We, you know, we have a lot in common. I think... Um, you know, it's really not the case in a lot of neighborhoods, in even in the city, that we have all the things that we have. We have, you know, we're really well connected with public transportation. Uh, we have nearby parks. We have a nearby beach. Um, we have people that live in high-rise buildings like I do. We have people that live in single-family houses, in two flats, in small apartment buildings. Um, so there's, you know, great diversity of um you know, um, housing that people, you know, can choose. Um, we have, um, um, it's a multi-ethnic community. Um, and I think that that's, it's important to me. Um, and I, I, um, I think that I, one of the experiences that, um, I bring to Andersonville and to my life here is that, you know, I grew, I, I lived in a, in a neighborhood that was not unlike this, in Detroit, and uh, that I saw, um, you know, what can happen when people stop caring about a neighborhood or flee a neighborhood, and, you know, it's the saddest thing in the world when I go back to my neighborhood on the east side of Detroit, and everything is gone. I mean, everything is gone. There's nothing left from my youth there, and uh, I, you know, I, I see this as a neighborhood where you know, people are not letting that happen. And and people have made a commitment to Chicago and to Andersonville uh, and to our schools and institutions. Uh, and I think that it's a, it's a feel-good thing to see that. Um, and I, you know, I hope to be part of that, you know, the, the reason why the neighborhood stays the way it is. But I'm not alone, and it's not just the businesses. It's also the homeowners and and even the renters. Um, it's the senior citizens who live in places like, you know, that have lived here for years and keep up their buildings, and, and sometimes they move on to uh, senior housing. We've got senior housing. We've got, we've got things for everybody at every phase in life. Um, you know, it's a kind of a cool neighborhood to be a little kid in, I think. Uh, I would, you know, I mean, I kind of grew up in that kind of, um, neighborhood and and um, I think uh, it's good that some places in the city are still like this. You know, some things about Chicago are a little hard. It's you know the, for parents figuring out the public school system and getting in the right school. Uh, property taxes are high. Um, there's you know there's a lot of infrastructure that needs help and uh, enduring a project like the CTA project that's going on right now. It's going to make life hard, and you have to be 
committed and then sort of recommit yourself every year. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to make this neighborhood better. I'm going to meet my neighbors. I'm going to welcome new neighbors, say goodbye to the ones moving away. And I think that's really what makes this really special. Well, Michael, we spoke a lot about the evolution of Hopleaf since 1992. Where do you see Hopleaf going in the future? You recently had solar panels put on the roof and, you know, you eschew kind of requests to build a second location. Can you speak to more about the future? Um, so um, I, you know, Hopleaf is as big as it ever needs to be. We're, we're never going to expand again. We are never going to open another Hopleaf. Um, so what we do now is constantly, one, maintain our physical plant uh, and try to improve it. So two years ago, we put the new storefront, which actually restored the front of the building to more what it looked like in 1896. Um, and, um, you know, we did install 75 solar panels on our roof to make ourselves more energy efficient. Um, we, there's a lot of little stuff that people don't notice. You know, we, uh, two years ago, we put all new HVAC in, uh, we're doing, you know, we're upgrading plumbing systems. We put a, um, a reverse osmosis water system in. Um, and so now it's, it's not about getting bigger. It's about maintaining our physical plant and, or making it better. Uh, it also involves, um, you know, catering to changing um, customer tastes. Uh, you know, the market is very, very different than it was five years ago, um, especially because of the number of breweries with tap rooms. We compete against 85 breweries with tap rooms in the city limits. It means that our beer sales are down 25% since 2015, but our wine sales are way up. So we're carrying more wine. We're doing more like, um, you know, we're trying to make sure that wine service is better. Um, we're making more people aware that we sell really great wine. Uh, we're trying to beef up our cocktail program. We're doing different things with the food menu now. Um, we're doing different kinds of events, um, special events that, you know, maybe feature other kinds of products that we sell. So... Um, that's what keeps us busy right now. That's what the future is. The future is actually making sure that we have a future. And to make sure you have a future, you have to realize that um, the customer is changing. The neighborhood is changing. Um, we have more homeowners, less renters. Um, if you look at who is sitting in a chair at the Hopleaf on a Wednesday night now, um, they're more likely to be over 50 years old. Um, so that's a different customer than maybe a bar in Logan Square where there's nobody over 30. And so, you know, it's an, you know, we have to cater to a maybe a little bit older customer than we used to. And maybe their, um, their taste for food, their taste for beer, their taste for wine is a little different than what the 23-year-old is. We don't get, you know, Andersonville is kind of a mature neighborhood that doesn't get a lot of the same people that that go to Pilsen or Logan Square, or Ukrainian Village, the people jumping in and out of their Ubers, cocktailing at one o'clock in the morning. We don't we don't have a lot of that anymore. the The nexus of late night drinking is not Andersonville. Um, you, you if you walk up and down the street at, at one o'clock in the morning, most of the bars are not busy at all. 
they were 10 years ago. But things have changed. So we, we've changed our hours. Um, we, don't, you know, we don't stay open until 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday anymore. We close at 2 every night because it, it, you know, there's nobody there. Why pay people to stand around with no customers? Um, but we, you know, we're busier at other times. I mean, during the day on weekends now, we're packed. So <clears throat> that's, that's what we do now to make sure that we have a future is that we tweak. Well, Michael, if you could take a day off and would be able to trade places with another business in Andersonville, which business would you choose? Oh, that's a really hard question. I, you know, it would definitely, you know, I don't have much experience outside of the hospitality industry. So uh, it would definitely have to be in one of the other, you know, restaurants in the neighborhood or something like that. And, you know, my wife and I just went to uh, Paso Roto um, this week. I thought, wow, this is a really cool place. I, you know, I could see like the, the business model there. It's a smaller place with, you know, very innovative food that that would be a kind of place that if I was starting out today, I might want to do something like that. Um, on the other hand, uh, I'm a super history geek. And so... Um, if I could take Scott Martin's place and um, um, be the owner of Simon's for a day, that would be a good thing. I feel like we can arrange that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe during one of the times that Scott's in Mexico for yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael, for being here. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Hopleaf, please visit hopleafbar.com. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is produced by the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce. Find episodes streaming weekly on iTunes and Podbean with show notes available at andersonville.org. This episode is brought to you by the Swedish American Museum, currently enrolling Travel the World Summer Camp for ages 6 through 11. Come and explore the food, dance, folk arts, and cultural identities of a different country each day. Find out more information at swedishamericanmuseum.org.